Good morning, everybody. Um, we're going to be reading from God's Word in uh, Colossians chapter 1. And if you're using the Bibles in your pew, that's on page 983. So if you please stand for God's Word. Thank you. Colossians. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is God's word. Amen. Keep your Bibles open to Colossians, and uh, let's pray together. Gracious Father, thank you that you are a God who speaks, and that you send your Spirit to give your people ears to hear. And so, Lord, that is our request this morning, Lord. We know that you are speaking, so we pray that we would hear, and we need your Spirit to do that. And so would you open our eyes and our hearts and our ears? Would you meet us as we look at your word? And would you be honored this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a few weeks back, my son Joshua and I had the chance to go to uh, spend a few days in California for my grandmother's funeral. She was 97 years old. She loved the Lord and, and walked with him all her days. It was, of course, a time of grief, but it was also a really sweet celebration of her life and her faith. Uh, she lived in Ripon, California. So Ripon is about halfway between Sacramento and San Francisco, right in the San Joaquin Valley, which is almond country if you've ever been there. Of course, they grow lots of other things, um, olives and grapes and, and such. But most of my dad's cousins all still live in that area, and they're all almond farmers, or as they say, almond farmers. But I will not explain why they call them almonds from the pulpit. You can ask me later. Uh, and so while we're there, uh, the almond trees were actually in, in full blossom and bloom. And so everywhere you drove, you were just surrounded by orchards of these blooming uh, almond trees. It was absolutely beautiful. But one thing that we noticed as we drove around was that near the foot of every tree, there was this bulge of sorts around the trunk, right at the foot of the tree. And it, it kind of looked like a like the tree had a spare tire at the bottom, like somebody had you know, tied a string around it when it was young, and then it grew and eventually like, grew up over and, and around that string. It was just kind of strange because all of these trees had that weird bulge. And so we asked one of my dad's cousins, what is that? Is that just natural to the tree? Do they all do that? 
And his answer was really surprising. Every single one of these almond trees that we had seen driving around had been grafted onto the root of a peach tree. They were all grafted, partly because peach trees, peach roots are stronger and partly because they produce sweeter almonds. Uh, just a pure almond tree can often have a very bitter uh, nut. And, and so all of the commercial almond trees are grafted into peach roots. So if you want to grow quality almonds with trees that will survive until harvest and nuts that people actually want to buy and eat, you, the, to improve the nut isn't what you do to the nut itself. It's what you do to the root. You've got to give it a new root system, one that both anchors it securely and enables it to grow and bear good fruit. And the same is true of gospel ministry, of making disciples for Christ. Jesus sends his church into the world for a harvest, not just of more Christians, but of mature Christians. As Paul says in Colossians 2.6, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. But the key to that harvest is being connected to the right root system. That's what anchors us. That's what provides the growth. So Paul says, walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So over the next few weeks, we are revisiting our vision statement as a church with the goal of kind of refocusing and clarifying and uh, being more specific in it. Our vision that, that we adopted as a church in 2011 to be a gospel-centered community living each day on mission for Christ. It's printed right there in your inside your worship folder. Uh, that is a biblical vision. That is a, a good, healthy vision. Uh, we adopted it after a rather extended time together, uh, even beginning before I got here, um, as we came together as a church community to hear from God and what he was calling us to. Uh, but it's also, as we have kind of gotten down the road a little bit, we've realized it's also a rather generic vision statement. Uh, it doesn't offer a lot of specific guidance in terms of what it looks like to live out these things to be this gospel-centered community living on mission here uh, in the Metro West. And so we're spending some time in Colossians for that reason. We're spending some time praying together and talking together over the next few months. We've been talking about this beginning with the lunch afterwards, which I hope you will all join us for. Uh, lunch followed with a, a congregational meeting. But as we do all of this, this process, it's important to understand several things. First, we're not starting over. This is not chucking everything God showed us five years ago and starting from scratch. This is building on what he's given us with more focus and clarity. So, so that's a, we're trying to apply our current vision or mission with more clarity and focus, taking into account who we are specifically as a congregation, where we live, where God has called us to minister the gospel, and what time it is, what's going on in the world right now that might shape the way we reach out. With the gospel. So, so we're not starting over, but it's also important that in this process we stay tethered to the scriptures. That what we're after here is not our opinions of how ministry should be done, even less our pet projects, but God's priorities. That's what needs to be driving this, 
this process. That whatever shape our church and ministries take moving forward, that we're aiming for God's goals and depending on God's means for getting there. That the kind of fruit that we're after is the fruit Jesus actually sent his disciples into the field to harvest. And that the root we're depending on to anchor us and to grow us is the root that God has given us in Christ and not something else. And that's why we're in Colossians. That's why we've stepped out of Exodus for a few weeks up until Easter. We'll come back into Exodus then. Uh, but Paul's goal in this letter to the ancient church in Colossae, he's concerned about the very same questions that we're asking for, for ourselves right now. Not only that the church would bear fruit, but that it would do so by remaining connected to the root being connected to the right root, anchored and able to grow. And that root, as Paul makes his point, is the unique supremacy and sufficiency of Christ, of who he is and what he's done. That is the root we've been given to be anchored in and to grow us. That's the heart of a gospel-driven church. And so what I want to do this morning is kind of let Colossians set a framework for the prayer and discussion that's going to be happening today after lunch and on into the next several weeks. Um, What kind of fruit is God calling us to bear? What's the goal of gospel ministry? And what is the unique root or heart of that ministry? Which, without which, uh, we will either produce bitter fruit or diseased fruit or maybe no fruit at all. So what's the unique root he's given us? And so we'll start briefly with the fruit or the aim of a gospel-driven church, and then we're going to spend most of our time looking at the root or the heart of a gospel-driven church. So what exactly is the goal of ministry, of the gospel? When Jesus sends his disciples into the world to make more disciples, what are we aiming for? What is the goal? Well, Paul's answer is, in Colossians, can be summarized as steadfast maturity in Christ. That's the outcome that Paul's ministry is driving towards. Steadfast maturity in Christ. The language of maturity or stability or growth shows up throughout his short letter. We saw it uh, last week when we looked at chapter 1, Uh, The opening prayer in chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, Paul's asking that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's a mature relationship with God, bearing, you know, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. We see it at the end of our passage this morning, on what Lena just read in verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which has been proclaimed. He wants to see people grow to the point of stability and steadfastness in their faith. Uh, look at 128 in your Bibles with me. Uh, Look there real quick. This is where Paul comes right out and explicitly tells us what the goal of his ministry is. This is it. Him, meaning Jesus here, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom 
that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's his goal of all that he's doing in preaching the gospel and shepherding churches and sending out other people to start new churches. His goal is to see everyone mature in Christ. Not just some, but everyone. Notice the repetition three times there. Everyone. We're teaching everyone, warning everyone, so that everyone may be mature in Christ. And then in chapter 2, verse 5, he says it again. For though I'm absent in body from the Colossians, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. The firmness of your faith. And, and as we read a minute ago, 2, 6 through 7, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. You hear that language of steadfast maturity. Uh, but he's not done. In chapter 2, verse 19, he describes the church with the metaphor of the body where Jesus is the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. It's meant to grow. And then he concludes the letter by mentioning uh, how his fellow servant, Epaphras, uh, has the exact same goal in chapter 4, verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. For what? What's he praying for? That you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. And so you hear this drumbeat over and over and over again. What is the goal? What is the kind of fruit that Paul wants to see from his ministry? It's steadfast maturity in Christ. His goal is not simply that more and more people come to know Jesus, though of course he wants that. Uh, But he wants to see people grow up in Jesus, to grow up in Jesus, to become mature in Christ, steadfast, stable, serving God joyfully, bearing fruit in every good work to the glory of God. When you uh, welcome a new baby into your home, you don't really want them to grow up. You just kind of want to freeze every single moment in time because they're so cute and they're so fun and this is so amazing and you cannot change. And, you know, when we make threats about duct taping our kids to their bed at night so they can't grow and all these kinds of things because we don't want them to grow up. And yet, even as much as we want to freeze them in time, we still find ourselves rejoicing with every milestone. You know, the first step, we're like posting it on Facebook and the first words and the first day of kindergarten, and all of these different milestones. We really do rejoice in them because we know, as much as we don't want to see them grow up, that that's the whole point, isn't it? To grow. Uh, To grow, to then launch them into the world. The point of being born is to grow up. The point of being born again is to grow up in Christ as well. To become mature in Christ. The gospel is not just about getting out of hell, or going to heaven when you die, as amazing and important as all of that is. It's about finding freedom and forgiveness in Christ, being delivered from the domain of darkness, as Paul puts it, and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and then learning how to live every day according to that new reality. 
that we are no longer part of the kingdom of darkness. We're part of the kingdom of God. And to live out, live that out. As you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and established, built up in the faith. That's the significance of the baptism that we celebrated this morning. That picture of, of you know, Jesus has made Johnny new. He has done a work in his heart. And, and that picture of going down into the water, that is the picture of dying to that old kingdom, to that old world, to our flesh. And rising to new life, but also to a new way of life. A way of walking and following Jesus. Enjoying God. Reflecting his holy character. Displaying his sacrificial love together as a family. Walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. For all endurance and patience with joy. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Paul's prayer is Paul's goal. Maturity in Christ. And so are we helping people grow up in Christ? That needs to be one of, our, one of the questions that we ask in this whole process of thinking about our ministry and our, vi- and our vision and, and, and so on. Are we helping people grow up in Christ? Not just to improve their lives, not just to find happiness or overcome obstacles, though the gospel will somehow address those things, but ultimately to meet Jesus and to grow up in Jesus, to be changed by Jesus, to walk in steadfast maturity in Christ. Do our ministries move people to that end? Or are they moving people to some other end? God's priority is that we become mature in Christ, that we meet him, that we be changed by him, that we grow up in him. Are his priorities driving our priorities as a church? That's a question we want to ask. Are they driving our priorities in our homes, in our relationships, in our ministries? This is the fruit of disciple-making. That's the aim of a gospel-driven church. That's our goal. But how does that happen? What is it that will cause that kind of growth? Especially since this is not always our experience. Uh, We are a broken people living in a broken world that doesn't always work the way that it's supposed to. And and so the fruit of our relationships is sometimes bitter. Um, The fruit of our service to God can often feel flat or fake. We're still prone to sin, to turning away from God and living as though we're the one who has the right to call the shots. In fact, apart from Christ, we're still trapped in that sin. As Paul puts it in 121, we are alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds apart from Christ. And so... So we want that kind of fruit, but you can't just try harder from the same old tree to make better nuts that taste better. Uh, Something else has to happen. You need a new root system. You need a completely 
new root system, to be cut off from the roots of this world, from sin and flesh and the decay that poisons our hearts and therefore spoils our fruit, and to be grafted into the pure root of Christ, who alone is able to both anchor us amid such a fallen world and to grow us toward godly maturity. And there is no other root system that will do that. There's no other source of both stability and growth that the church can look to other than the finished work and power of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul wants to convince the Colossians of and and of us of uh, as he talks about uh, where this fruit comes from, that, that Christ is uniquely qualified to restore this broken world and to redeem our broken lives. And if we're not convinced that he's uniquely qualified, that there's nothing else we can anchor ourselves in to accomplish that, if we're not convinced of that, we will look for other root systems to try and grow, ones we think that might work a little bit faster or take a little bit less work. We're going to be drawn to those things. and We'll look a little bit at that next week. But why is Jesus uniquely qualified for this? That's the question as we come to verses 15 to 23. Uh, The heart of a gospel-driven church, the root system. So if you look at at verse 15 through 20, this has often been called the Christ hymn, or or it's described as some sort of hymn stuck in here uh, that that is a, a declaration of Christ's supremacy. The passage flows out of Paul's opening prayer that we looked at last week very briefly. Uh, And really, this passage uh, is Paul's answer to his own prayer uh, back in verse 9, that that the church would be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, not just God's will for me, but God's will for all of history, to know God's big plan, which is to redeem all that is broken through Christ, Paul's kind of now answering his own prayer by saying, here's the knowledge I want you all to be filled with. I want you to be utterly, thoroughly convinced of the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ in God's redeeming work, that there's no other way to put back together what's broken in this world. And so he makes that case in two parts. First, uh, describing Christ's unique role in creation. That's one of the things that qualifies him to be the only source of change and growth. And then second, Christ's unique role in redemption. And so we'll look first at his role in creation. This is verses 15 to 17. He begins by describing Jesus as the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Think about that language for a second. The image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. What other parts of the Bible does that language remind you of? Genesis, right? This is language of creation. We were made in the image of God at creation. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And so so what is Paul telling us about Christ? First, I think he's telling us that he really is human. Jesus really is human. Humanity was made in the image of God, and and here is the perfect sample. One who actually does the job humanity was made to do. 
He faithfully bears God's image to in this world uh, in relationship with the Father. So you can think of it this way. Jesus is everything that Adam and Israel and you and me fail, were supposed to be but failed to be. He is and does all of that as the perfect human. His, his was a perfect covenant obedience. He never sinned. Uh, he never succumbed to temptation or rebellion so that he might stand in our place as our representative in both life and death. And so he's telling us that, that he really is human. But I think this phrase tells us more than that, that it also tells us he really is divine. He really is truly God at the same time. And you see that in several ways. First, there's a subtle contrast between us and him. We are made in the image of God. But Jesus is the image of God. It's just one word, but it makes a big difference. He is the template, the mold. He is the very image of God itself. So if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God. He makes him known. As one author puts it, it's, it's by looking at Jesus that we discover who God is. Or you think of the words of John 1.18. No one has ever seen God. God's invisible, right? No one's ever seen God. The only God, Jesus, who's at the Father's side, has made him known. So we are able to see something invisible, God, by looking at Christ. Again, uh, if we want to see God, if you want to know God, to relate to and enjoy God, the only avenue we've been given is through Jesus. Uh, another way that Paul declares Christ's divinity here is by identifying him as the firstborn of all creation. There's something special and unique about Christ. He's the image of the invisible, invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation, or uh, a better translation, perhaps, over all creation, the firstborn over all creation, which does not mean, as Arius, uh, back in the third century, mistook that Christ is a created being. Christ condescended to creation. He came down. He took humanity into his deity, taking on human flesh and becoming part of it. But the person of Jesus is not a created thing. The person of Christ is not a created being. Uh, the language here of firstborn is not so much language of um, being born, but rather language of preeminence here. And you think about that, even as we saw in Exodus uh, not too long ago, in Exodus chapter 4, God says, Israel's my firstborn son. Well, there's a lot of people who've been around before Israel. So, but he's talking about preeminence. There's this priority, this special place that Israel plays, or he describes David in the same way in Psalm 89. So Christ is preeminent over all creation, and, and the simple evidence for the fact that he was not created, but he's over creation, comes in verse 16, that he's actually God's agent of creation. He's the one who did the creating work. Uh, for by him, all things were created, all things were created through him and for him. So there's something unique about Christ. He was God's agent in creation. It was made through him, by him, for him. The whole thing exists 
for his purposes, for him. Think about that. Everything you see is created not just by Jesus or through Jesus, but for Jesus. We exist for him. We exist for him. He's supreme over all of it. Uh, All things in heaven on earth, visible and invisible, uh, even those forces that sometimes seem to be in opposition to God. Uh, What Paul describes here is thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. Jesus is even supreme over all of those. He precedes all of it. Verse 17, Jesus is before all things. Tests to his eternality, that he doesn't have a beginning or an end. He's before all things, and he sustains all things. He holds the entire fabric of creation together. I mean, think about that. You know, we keep sending these probes into outer space to try and just get a, like a thumbnail sketch of how big this universe is. All of that is held together by Christ. It was made by him, for him. He sustains it. He holds all things together. And so if that's who Jesus is in his role in creation, it would make some sense that we ought to be able to trust him with the mission he's given us to do, that he's actually capable of doing the work, right? I mean, Paul begins by taking us into that role in creation, which is a a fitting qualification for his role in restoring this broken creation to wholeness. So if the problem of this world is that it no longer accords to God's design, that, that God's vision for what this world was to be in the garden that was spoiled by sin and rebellion, if the problem is that, that we, don't, we no longer uh, line up with the blueprint, well, then wouldn't it make sense that, that the person who is qualified to fix it wrote the blueprint and, and was there in the first construction, if you will, that Jesus is uniquely qualified to restore fallen creation because he was there in the first place doing it. Only someone like that can properly fix it. Only someone like Christ is qualified, therefore, to do it. So he's unique in his role in creation. But how does he do that restoring work? Verses 18 to 20 show us his role in redemption. His role in redemption. So look at verse 18. And notice the shift in the subject matter. He goes from speaking about Christ's work among the entire cosmos. And then he narrows the focus down to the church. It's a pretty big jump, right? All cosmos down to the church. The people of God in Christ. Why make that shift in his focus? Because out of the broken first creation... God is bringing forth a new creation, a new humanity with Christ as the head. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So he's not only God's agent in the first creation, he's the head of the new creation. And he has brought that new creation to bear in advance and in part through his own resurrection from the dead. And you look at the Old Testament, you look at the Jewish anticipation during Jesus' earthly ministry. The idea of the resurrection was something that was far off. It was something that was going to happen at the end of time, and all people would be, uh, would be risen from the dead, some to judgment, some to 
eternal glory in a new heavens and new earth, and everything would finally be right. When Jesus broke forth from the grave, he broke all of their categories, taking that future hope and bringing it into the present in part and in advance, and in a sense, beginning that new creation. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. He's the first batch of the harvest that anticipates the later harvest to come. And so God's power of new creation is already present and at work in this fallen world. It's not here in full. We're still waiting for him to return. But Christ's redeeming work is already present. Our hope is not just that Jesus really did rise, but that we will rise too with him when he returns. And that's when this process of maturing and growth will finally be complete. You know, Paul describes it at the end of, of Philippians that when the Lord Jesus returns, he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to even to subject all things to himself. So there's this process. But that process has invaded the present. And God is already at work changing lives, making things new through the cross and resurrection of Christ. And the whole purpose of Christ being this first fruits, this new, uh, this down payment of God's new creation, is that he might be preeminent in all of it. That in everything he might be preeminent. That we might see his supremacy. That we wouldn't be tempted to prioritize things other than him. But that we would see that this is what it's all about. This is who it's all about. That nothing can take his place. And here's why in verse 19, why Jesus is preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It was the pleasure of God, not only to create all things through Jesus, but to reconcile and redeem all things through Jesus as well. God isn't redeeming this world through a program or through politics or through war or through education or through arts. He's redeeming this world through a person, Jesus Christ. He took on the flesh. He was the fullness of God in bodily form so that through him, verse 20 he might reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And think about that for a second, that language of all things. So the whole realm of creation, heaven and earth, anything that's been stained by, the, by sin because of the fall, anything that bears the mark of fallen humanity, there is nothing in this broken world or our broken lives that Jesus cannot touch and transform. He is able to change all of it. He's reconciling all things to himself. He's restoring peace. That's what the language of reconciliation means when you think about it. It's restoring peace. It's, it's not just ending conflict. Sometimes when you think of reconciliation, well, if we can just agree to disagree and get along, you know, that'd be a start. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about taking what is broken and mending it, making it whole once again. Real biblical peace, wholeness. It's the Old Testament 
vision of shalom. Everything that was compromised in the fall. So our relationship with God, our invitation into God's presence, our joyful submission to God's rule, our enjoyment of his blessing, our our making much of his glory, all of the stuff that was messed up because of our sin, Jesus makes that whole again. He reclaims it, he restores it through the cross of Christ. And that is the price of reconciliation. That is the price. It's the means of redemption was the blood of his cross. The cross is the centerpiece of God's plan to put all of this back together again. On the cross, the full weight of God's holy anger against sin and evil, rebellion, wickedness, the the way that we treat each other, the way that we treat God, all of his holy anger against that was poured out on Christ in our place. Christ who willingly took it out of love to rescue us from it. That we might therefore have peace with God. There is a price to peace. And Jesus paid that price in his blood. As Paul explains in one twenty-one to 23. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind. So, so that's who we are apart from Christ. We're alienated from God and from one another. Hostile in mind. Doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard. We have peace with God through the cross. We who deserve the dungeon have instead been invited to the dinner table. That's that's the reconciling work of Christ. Because through the cross, God has canceled the debt of our sin. Paul continues in chapter 2, 13 and 14. He says, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, with Christ. We are raised with Christ. There's that baptism picture again. Live together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, all the different things we've done to break God's law to profane God's holy name, he took that list of indictments and he nailed it to the cross. Declaring us not guilty. Paid in full. The cross is the price of our uh, our reconciliation, our peace with God and with each other. And it's the power of our redemption. Paul continues in verse 15, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities of the spiritual forces of evil and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. He destroys the power of sin, evil, and death by taking it all onto himself. And so the cross really is the centerpiece, the root system in God's plan of redemption. It's the heart of the gospel, the cross and the resurrection. It's the heart of the gospel, and therefore it's the heart of a gospel-driven church. It's the only way that real and lasting fruit can be born for God, this fruit of steadfast maturity. 
anything else is like trying to grow good fruit from a weak or a compromised root system or, or trying to drive a car without an engine in it. If we try and make disciples by not relying on Jesus, it's like trying to drive a car without an engine. It's not going to work. We need a new root system, and we need to hold fast to that root system, and that root system is Jesus. There's nothing else that's going to bring change in our lives or anybody else's life. He is uniquely qualified to restore God's broken world and redeem our broken lives. John uh, 15.5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is it. Uh, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So, whatever we do in ministry, whatever direction God calls us uh, to in the months and years ahead, we must hold fast to that root. We must abide in Christ. After all, there really is nothing else we have to offer to the world around us when you think about it. God sends his church into the world not because we're smarter not because we're more sophisticated, not because we're holier than anybody else, not because we have better programs or anything like that. He sends us into the world because we bear a message of redemption and hope that no one else has. The hope of Christ. Because there's nothing on this earth, in heaven or on earth, that's qualified to deal with our sin and put this brokenness around us back together than the uniquely qualified, supreme and sufficient Son of God who was there in the beginning, who has accomplished the work of redemption. He is all that we have, and He is enough. So that's our call. That's the conviction I want us to bring into our conversations in the weeks ahead. Uh, we need to wrestle with questions of context. What does this look like practically lived out? But we need to make sure we're pursuing God's priorities and depending on God's power. And I'm looking forward to trusting God together in this journey, to seeing what is it he's going to uh, call us to. What's this going to look like? I, I really believe there's a lot more of Westgate's story to be written. And I'm excited to write it together with you so long as Jesus is the hero of the story and not Westgate. That's my condition. And I think that's all our condition. So let's pray. Lord, you are sufficient. You are everything that we need. You are supreme. You are preeminent. You are over all creation, over all of us. You are head of your church. You have done everything necessary to reconcile us to the Father, to strengthen us for following you. You've given us your spirit. Lord, we are your servants. And so we pray that we would be faithful, that we would be humble, that we would be dependent, that we would follow your priorities and depend on your power and that through us, your name would be exalted in the Metro West and in every single one of our hearts, that we would grow up more and more in Christ.
We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.